All right, Proverbs chapter 5, beginning in verse 7. Context is warning against adultery, and that would be between husband and wife and breaking that covenant, but also adultery is used by God to describe breaking our relationship with him. But listen to these words. Proverbs 5, 7. Therefore, hear me now, my children, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Remove your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the cruel, to the, to the merciless, Lest aliens, lest strangers be filled with your wealth and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And you mourn at last, one uh, translation says, and you groan at the end of your days when your flesh and your body are consumed. So this idea is when you look at your last days, you do not want to look back on the history of your life and have these words coming out of your mouth. How have I, how I have hated instruction, and my heart despised correction. I have not obeyed the voice of my teachers, nor inclined my ears to those who instructed me. I was on the verge of total ruin in the midst of the assembly and congregation. So here, this the, the wisdom, hear these words. Do not let this be you on, in your last days where you're looking back at your life and say, I should have listened to God. I should have responded earlier. I am moaning and I'm groaning at the destruction that my life has left behind as a legacy. So today, we want this heart and this mind in in us as we turn to Saul. So today we are going to finish Saul's life. And Saul is ultimately killed by God as a judgment in a battle because this was him. He did not listen to instruction over years and years. So turn back to 1 Samuel. In context, we were told in chapter 28 of Samuel when Saul goes and finds a medium who calls up Samuel from the dead, super weird scene, and out of the mouth of Samuel, he says, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hands of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also deliver the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. So last week, we've, we've covered, you know, a prior couple, couple of chapters. We turned our attention back to David and what David was doing as he returned to Ziklag, had to chase down the Amalekites. He's saved his family. He's returned. He's had a major restoration in his own relationship with the Lord as we pressed into last week that David made the choice to strengthen himself in the Lord his God. At the same time, Saul is now sitting in these words of Samuel, and the day is now tomorrow for Saul. This is Saul's last tomorrow that we're sitting in in this text. We don't know what Saul did when he left this, the witch of Endor, as she's called, and goes back to the camp, to the military camp. Did he tell any of this information to his son, Jonathan? 
and to his other sons? Did he give any of this information to his military advisors? Because the words that came out of Samuel's mouth, super strange, like ghost in the flesh, called up from the dead, God using Samuel once again as a prophet. Saul, tomorrow, you, your sons, and the army of Israel is dead. So Saul is sitting in these emotions, right? And he's sitting in the consequences of the last decades of his life, that he's sitting in those words of the proverb, I should have listened to my teachers. I should have listened to Samuel. I should have obeyed God. Do you think Saul was saying any of those words? I don't know if he is or did or not. That's what makes me... That's why Saul drives me nuts. I've told you multiple times. There's all these question marks in his life. I hope he had a moment of repentance, but biblically what's described for us, we don't. So before we spend, before we kill Saul, watch him die, I want to read this chapter out of a book that we've been going through at the men's breakfast. I read through this yesterday. Um, But it's a good summary of his life because Saul wasn't all bad. But listen to these words. This is the longest chapter in this book. Um, So it'll take us about five minutes, but it's well worth reading because I can't say it any better myself. What kind of man was Saul? Who was this one who made himself David's enemy? Anointed of God, deliverer of Israel, and yet remembered mostly for his madness. Forget the bad press. Forget the stinging reviews. Forget his reputation. Look at the facts. Saul was one of the greatest figures of human history. He was a farm boy, a country kid who made it good. He was tall, good-looking, and well-liked. He was baptized into the Spirit of God. He also came from a good family. In his lineage were some of the greatest historical figures of all humanity, Abraham, Jacob, Moses. These were his ancestors. Do you remember the background? Abraham had founded a nation. Moses had set the nation free from slavery. Joshua gave the people a toehold in the land that God had promised to them. The judges kept the whole thing from disintegrating into total chaos. That's when Saul came along. It was Saul who took these people and welded them into a united kingdom. Saul united a people and founded a kingdom. Few men have ever done that. He created an army out of thin air. He won battles in the power of God, defeated the enemy again and again, as few men have ever done. Remember that. And remember that this man was immersed in the Spirit. Furthermore, he was a prophet. The Spirit came on him in power and authority. He did and said unprecedented things before unprecedented was a cool word. And it was all by the power of the Spirit resting on him. He was everything people today are seeking to be, empowered with the Holy Spirit, able to do the impossible for God. A leader chosen by God with power from God. Saul was given authority that is God's alone. He was God's anointed, and God treated him that way. He was also eaten with jealousy, filled with self-importance, and willing to live in spiritual darkness. Is there a morale in these contradictions? Yes, 
and it will splinter a lot of your concepts about power, about great men and women under God's anointing, and about God himself. Many pray for the power of God more every year. Those prayers sound powerful, sincere, godly, and without ulterior motive. Hidden under such prayer and fervor, however, are ambition, craving for fame, the desire to be considered a spiritual giant. The person who prays such a prayer may not even know it, but dark motives and desires are in his heart, in your heart. Even as people pray these prayers, they are hollow inside. There is little internal spiritual growth. Prayer for power is the quick and the short way, circumnavigating internal growth. There's a vast difference between the outward clothing of the Spirit's power and the inward filling of the Spirit's life. And the first, despite the power, the hidden man of the heart may remain unchanged. In the latter, the monster is dealt with. Interesting about God, he hears all those requests for power, which fervent young men and women pray in every generation, and he answers them. Very often, he grants these requests for power for authority. Sometimes, in answering them, he says yes to some very unworthy vessels. He gives, power to unwor- he gives unworthy people his power, even though they are a pile of dead man's bones inside. Why does God do such a thing? The answer is both simple and shocking. He sometimes gives unworthy vessels a greater portion of power so that others will eventually see the true state of internal nakedness within that individual, which is exactly what we see in Saul. So think again when you hear the power merchant. Remember, God sometimes gives power to people for unseen reasons. A person can be living in the grossest of sin, and the outer gift will still be working perfectly. The gifts of God, once given, cannot be recalled, even in the presence of sin. Furthermore, some people living just such lives are the Lord's anointed in the Lord's eyes. Saul was living proof of this fact. The gifts cannot be revoked. Terrifying, isn't it? If you are young and have never seen such things, you may be certain that sometime in the next 40 years you will see highly gifted and very powerful men and women reputed to be leaders in the kingdom of God do some very dark and ugly deeds. What does this world need? Gifted men and women outwardly empowered or individuals who are broken inwardly transformed? Keep in mind that some who have been given the very power of God have raised armies, defeated the enemy, brought forth mighty works of God, preached and prophesied with unparalleled power and eloquence, and thrown spears, and hated people, and attacked others, and plotted to kill, and prophesied naked, and even consulted witches. Saul, a complicated man. Saul is a complicated man. God gave him decades of opportunities to turn. And we watch here in the final moments of his life not turning. And it's it's miserably shocking. I have hope in my heart that he's in the kingdom of heaven, but I have great doubt that he's there. I'm not his judge, 
but God has preserved him as a character to not only contrast he and David, but to give us pictures of how we interact with God, how we interact with others, so that we can turn away from the inner Saul and allow God to transform us internally. So now chapter 31, as we look at his end, and this begins with a bunch of words that begin with F. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Geboa. What's being described as the Israel army there in the south and the Philistine army in the north as they're in the Jezreel Valley. The Philistines are fighting against Israel. They are, lo- they are defeating the nation of Israel. The Israeli soldiers turn and flee to their military camp on Mount Geboa and the Philistines are charging after them hard so that they are falling slain on Mount Gilboa itself. The battle is in the hands of the Philistines. Verse 2, then the Philistines followed. literally means they clung to, they stuck to, they followed hard after Saul and his sons. And the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua, Saul's sons. The battle became fierce against Saul, heavy against Saul. The archers hit him. Literally, the archers found him, and he was severely, powerfully wounded by the archers. What's really helpful is run the movie reel in your head. You've all seen movies that have these epic battle scenes, right? So picture the warfare of its day. Think of Saul, him physically. He's been hard at battle for hours. His military is losing the battle, and he is fleeing. As he is fleeing, and his sons are attempting to defend father in their loyalty, his sons are dying. And in the scene, in the description, there are archers that launch arrows, and they find Saul. So my image of him, he doesn't have just a singular arrow sticking out of his body. He's a man that has multiple arrows in his flesh, but he's still breathing. He's still conscious. What do you do in this moment? He is severely wounded. He knows that he is going to die. What do you do? He knows this is his tomorrow. He knows he's going to die. He has just seen and witnessed his sons die. He is witnessing his army be decimated by the Philistines, just as the words of Samuel, just the day before. Do you get right with God in this moment, yes or no? Saul doesn't. There's no recorded conversation between he and God. There's no repentance. He knows that he's going to step into the next life, the afterlife, in Sheol, that he's going to be there with Samuel. He looks to an armor bearer. It says, Saul says to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust thrust me through with it, uh, lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me and torture me. So Saul's attention is once again in his physical security. His whole life has been all about him. 
And God has knocked on the door of his heart repetitiously trying to wake him up to come to his Lord in a trusting relationship, to come to him in. We never see Saul ask for forgiveness for his disobedience, for turning away from the Lord. We see him do these partial, uh, repentant, uh, I'm not going to kill you anymore, David, attitude one day, and then how, we don't know how long it lasted for. Was it an hour? What is it, a day, a week, a month? But he always turned back to eyes on himself, trying to protect his own kingdom, his own kingship, his own legacy. But here he is, barely able to breathe, with arrows sticking out of his body, and he chooses not to have a conversation with God. He chooses to look at his armor bearer and says, kill me so that I am not tortured. Thinking that, freeing himself from physical torture is his best option in the moment, not realizing and not understanding that stepping into an eternity apart from a saving relationship with God his torture became much, much greater. Do you see the picture? And my heart in this moment with Saul, Saul, say the words. Father, forgive me. And he's clean. Say the words. What keeps you from your relationship with your creator. Nothing should. Don't let you, your history, your legacy, your emotions, your circumstances keep you from running to your God. All Saul had to do was say the words. How many people do you know that have stepped into eternity and didn't say the simple words, Father, forgive me. How many conversations have you had with people where you're encouraging them towards light and life and hope and cleansing and truth, and they walk away from that conversation with a heart like Saul? Just say the words. Three simple words in humbling yourself and looking to God, Father, save me. That's all it takes. And a soul steps out of disobedience and destruction and distress and steps into his marvelous light and life for all eternity just by intentionally crying out to the creator for help. Do you see Saul's epic tragedy of a life? Filled with arrows, and his thoughts are only on his immediate self. I don't want the Philistines to get me, because if they get me, they're going to torture me. Nothing about his sons, nothing about the army. It's only me. That was Saul, and his life is a tragedy. And if you have lived your life for yourself, three simple words. Father, 
forgive me. And now extend that conversation. Transform me from the inside. We all attend to self. We all have needs. We all have wants. We all have desires. But Lord, here's my heart. I need it. I desire it. I want it to image you in all of your fullness. In the man that you've made me and created me to be, in my personality, in my life, Lord, let me image you to my bride. Let me image you to my kids. Let me image you to my family. Let me image you to my church. Let me image you to my community. Whatever that looks like, Lord, here I am. And then what's the relationship look like? It's just simply following however he leads you day in and day out. Say the words. But his armor bearer would not. Why? Because he was greatly afraid, and we're going to see why in a minute. Therefore, Saul took a sword and fell on it. So, mortal wounds, he's going to die. Armor bearer won't kill him. Picks up a sword, falls on it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul, his three sons, his armor bearer, and all his men died together that same day. Tragic. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those who were on the other side of the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook the cities and fled, and the Philistines came and dwelt in them. So it happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain. They found Saul. Don't shake my hands later because I got snot all over my hands. Sorry, it's gross. Is there a Kleenex around? Sorry, I'm grossing myself out. But I won't blow it because then it'll honk and that's even going to make it more gross. All right. Where am I? So it happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head. It's a trophy. They stripped off his armor. Again, these are valued treasures of a conquering army. And they sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim it in the temple of their idols and among the people. The Philistines and our gods we are better than the nation of Israel and Israel's God. We are victors. That's what's being proclaimed. Not realizing and not knowing whose fault was this defeat. All of the burden lies on Saul's shoulders and his tragic life. His choices led to these consequences in his life, his children's life, and in the nation that he was to lead. Then they put his armor in the temple of the Asterisk, and they fastened his body to the wall of Beth Shan. I started earlier with not just all of his bad press. Saul did really good things too, and he was remembered that. So verse 11, now the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard that the Philistines what the Philistines had done to Saul. All the valiant men arose and traveled all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. 
And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. They took their bones and buried them under a tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted for seven days. So this is the story from chapter 11 after Saul was first anointed as king. There is a scene where the Ammonites have come and they've laid siege to the community of Jabesh Gilead. And the, the request of what do you want us to give you to surrender, to not kill us, is let everybody come on out and we're going to gouge out your right eye. That was what the Ammonites wanted to do to this community. Jabesh Gilead, this community, sends word to the tribes of Israel, and it says that the Holy Spirit comes upon Saul, and Saul is filled with anger. And he sends to all of the tribes of Israel to gather them together to help the community of Jabesh Gilead. He amasses an army of 300,000 Israelis. And before he comes to Jabesh Gilead, he says, tomorrow, tomorrow your help is coming. And to me, that really stands out in this because what did Samuel tell Saul? Tomorrow your death and judgment is coming, Saul where before Saul as a military hero was able to tell a community, tomorrow your help comes, tomorrow your salvation will arrive. And again, just what a stark contrast from his beginning to his end. As we shift into 2 Samuel, the scene continues on. So, you know, Jabesh Gilead, it's pretty much central Israel. David is south down in Ziklag. So as what's going on in Saul's life is uh, activities are going on in David's life at the same time, right? It keeps bouncing back and forth between scenes. So 2 Samuel chapter 1 says, Now it came to pass after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David stayed two days in Ziklag, on the third day, behold, it happened that a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. This guy is bringing bad news because he is visually in the position of mourning with his clothes torn and dust on his head. So it was when he came to David that he fell on the ground and prostrated himself. And David said to him, where have you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. Then David said to him, how did the matter go? Please tell me. Remember, David was potentially going to be there on the battlefield with the Philistines attacking his own brethren, but God removed him from that context. So he knew that a battle was going on. Tell me, how did the matter go? And he can see that it's bad news. And he said, the people have fled from the battle. Many of the people are fallen dead, and Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. So David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead? Then the men, then the young man who told him said, As I happened by chance to be on Mount Geboa, there was Saul leaning on his spear, a famous spear that he always had right next to him. And indeed, the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. Now when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? So I answered, I am an Amalekite. There's a lot of irony there that we're not going to get into, but because Saul didn't deal with the Amalekites, that was the reason that the kingdom was torn from him and given to David. He said to me again, please stand over me and kill me. 
for anguish has come upon me. You know, so it's understood that this guy's just telling lies. Um, some kind, you know, it's, it, was Saul still alive when this Amalekite came alongside of him, even though he's got a sword in his gut and he wants to be killed all the way? Uh, probably not. So most think that this guy's telling lies to get favors from David. So these are the words that Saul said to me. My life still remains in me. So I stood over him and killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm and brought them here to my Lord. You know, essentially, I finished the job. Here's proof of it. Now can I have my reward, please? Verse 11. Therefore David took hold of his own clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, for the people of the Lord, for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Look at all the different relationships David is grieving. He's even grieving for Saul, which I find fascinating. It says a lot about David's heart. It says a lot about the road that God has traveled with David. Remember David multiple times withholding his hand from killing the Lord's anointed. David multiple times intentionally choosing not to seize authority and power for himself, just fully trusting his life in the Lord's hands. But as he's looked at the aggressor against him and all of that pain that Saul caused in his life, when Saul dies, David's heart is grieved for that man. And I understand it. I'm grieved for Saul. That's why I got this question. I hope he's looking at the face of our Savior. I'm just not confident that he is. I got a lot of doubt. But here, David responding. He is mourning for the loss of his king. He is mourning for the loss of his best friend, Jonathan. He is mourning for the loss of men that he knew that were on the battlefield from the different tribes. He knows these people. I mean, this is personal. So he is tearing his clothes, and he is mourning. He's doing what is culturally right and doing it before the Lord in relationship. And then David says to the young man who told him, where are you from? And he said, I am the son of an alien, a stranger, an Amalekite. So David said to him, how was it that you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, go near and execute him. And he struck him so that he died. And now David's talking to the dead man on the ground. Your blood is on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. You look at David's attitude towards Saul. God forbid that I would touch the Lord's anointed. Saul's armor bearer was greatly afraid of Saul's request 
to be killed by this armor bearer because this man had the same fear. God forbid that I would strike the Lord's anointed. And out of this Amalekite's mouth, again, it's, it's irony and it's tragedy in that an Amalekite is the one who is claiming to have executed Saul, whether it's true or not. Out of your mouth, you said that you killed the Lord's anointed. Your blood is on your head as David has him executed. Verse 17. Then David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan, his son. And he told them to teach the children of Judah the song of the bow. Indeed, it is written in the book of Jasher. Jasher means the upright, and here it's preserved for us. I wanted to get to this point in this song and this lamentation of David so that we fully close out Saul's life. Next week, we're going to sit in David being lifted up as king and appointed as king over the tribe of Judah. So we'll sit in that next week. Sit with David as he chooses to press into a pen and a piece of paper and the Holy Spirit and to sing to God about Saul and Jonathan and then command this to be taught to the children of Israel. Why? Why these, listen to David's words, and we'll talk about it when we get to the end. But why does David want the children of Israel to be taught this worship song? The beauty, the ornament of Israel is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Repetitious phrase in this song, Saul was a mighty man of God. Jonathan was a mighty man of God. How the mighty have fallen. Saul's is an utterly tragic life, and of course Jonathan is dying with dad because he was a loyal man to his father, even knowing that David would be king. Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of, the, of Ashkelon, cities of the Philistines, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph, right? This is exactly what the Philistines are doing with Saul's head and his body and his armor and proclaiming it in their temples and to their people. Look at our victory. David's heart is crying, tell it not in Gath, the exact opposite. On the mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew nor rain upon you nor fields of offerings. Again, just poetry express, expressing, let the place where Saul and Jonathan fell, let it always be a place of mourning, is the poetry that's being communicated. For the shield of the mighty is cast away there, literally is defiled there. The shield that was to protect not just Saul, but Saul was to be a shield for the nation. The shield of the mighty has been defiled there. The Philistines have taken it away as a trophy. The shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the, from the what does that word say? I've got fat, thank you. Ah, from the best of the mighty. The bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. They were mighty in the battle. I love this. Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant in their lives. If you were David, could you say that out of your mouth concerning Saul? 
Saul was loved and lovely in his life. Saul had all of this potential. His tragic life was not necessary. But here, David, as we all do at funerals, what do we remember? We remember the good things. We remember the potential. We remember the power of God. We remember that even if it's not recorded for us, that as Saul is sitting there with quivers sticking out of his body, he could have had a moment of God where he cried out the words, God, forgive me. And in their death, they were not divided, not separated as father and son. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. There was benefits of Saul for the kingdom of Israel as the kingdom was established. At the same time, he caused a lot of pain. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan was slain in your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me, very lovely to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. David's comments there about uh, Jonathan, there is nothing unholy in their relationship as, as brothers and as friends. But David is using language that expresses, man, Dave, Jonathan, here is who you were as my friend. You were loyal. You were faithful. You were trustworthy. We had the best of relationships. Your love my love for you and your love towards me, it was the greatest of loves because we had a wonderful, godly, holy, encouraging, trustworthy relationship as brothers, and it's a fabulous declaration. Kathleen, come on up. We're going to finish in verse 27 where it says, the weapons of war are perished. He's looking at Saul and, and Jonathan as, as men. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 10 talk, talks about the weapons of our warfare because the weapons of our warfare are not perished. 2 Corinthians 10, Paul has to say, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. For the pulling down of strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Standing in stark contrast to Saul's life. Here, the Apostle Paul, named after King Saul, proclaiming to the Corinthians, your weapons. We're not looking at guns. We're not looking at swords. We're not looking at sticks. We're not looking at our mouth. The weapons of our warfare 
is Jesus and Jesus alone. It's this relationship, this trust that we have, this confidence and hope as we've cried out to him the words, Jesus, save me. Jesus, cleanse me. Jesus, help me. We are strong in his power, in his life, in his authority because of who he is alone. Regardless of how tragic of a history your life may have already been through what has been done to you or what you may have done in your own behaviors, when you cry out to God these simple words, there is restoration, there is reconciliation, and there is a path forward in his life so that when you get to your final tomorrow, do not say the words to yourself, I should have listened to Blake on that day and said some simple words to my creator. Your life has value. Your life has beauty. Your life was created for a purpose, to image your creator in this life right now, today, as we get to hang out as brothers and sisters. He has made you to image him to one another as you leave the doors today. Your life will produce fruit for his glory if you just simply follow him every day. Do not let your life be like Saul's, the tragedy. Amen.